please be aware that some of the content discussed in this episode is of a sensitive nature. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast aren't necessarily endorsed by the host or Amplified Wealth Management. Listener discretion is advised. Money Mind, expanding your mind when it comes to money matters. Here's your host, Tanya Carlson from Amplify Wealth Management. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Money Mind. Today's guest is CEO and investment manager Vitaly Katzenelson. Vitaly was born and raised in Murmansk in Russia until he moved to the USA in 1991 with his family. Vitaly studied finance and joined investment management firm IMA uh, based in the US. Vitaly became chief investment officer in 2007 and and CEO in 2012. Uh, He's married with three children living in Denver, Colorado. And as you're about to learn, Vitaly has a love of writing and has written for the Financial Times, Barron's, The Institutional Investor. And he's also written three books, two books on investing and his latest book, Soul in the Game, which is part autobiography and and part life advice. Um, I'm super keen to discuss this book today. Vitaly, you are our first international guest, so we're very excited to have you. Welcome to the show. Wow, that's a huge privilege. Thank you so much. that's a very difficult, now I feel a lot of pressure, so, but all right, <laughs> no I'll, pressure. I'll try. Just a chat, just a chat. Now, I do actually ask everybody um, on my podcast the same two questions in the beginning, and the first one is a quick one. Are you a spender, a saver, or an in-betweener? It depends. <laughs> Good, probably the right answer. Okay. I'm a spender on experiences. Mm-hmm. I am a saver on material things, mm-hmm. like the stuff, and I... Try to be actually minimalist on a lot of big stuff because I just think I believe things should bring you joy. And uh, and a lot of times I'm in between. Like I, you know, and 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 more importantly, I have changed over the years. Over the years, I was a lot more. Yeah, which, you know, as financial situation situation changes, I change. You know, so that's right. Yeah, I guess when we're younger, we can afford to be a little bit more um, relaxed about these things, can't we? not prioritise things as much. Okay, and the second question I normally ask, um, which I've probably given away a little bit in my introduction, was um, can you tell us about your cultural upbringing and background? So I was born in Russia. Not just Russia, I was born in Soviet Russia, which is, uh, was a, in Soviet Russia was a very different country than it is today. And and, uh, in Jewish family, and uh, we left Russia when I was uh, 18 years old in 1981. And we moved to the United States, and I lived in the United States for 30-plus years, and I have a wife now and three kids. And um, some people would look at my background and would say kind of growing up in a poor country with very few political freedoms, et cetera, was a huge, you know, was, was, was a detrimental to my development. And I would argue that is a, that's a, that was a huge gift, mm-hmm. Because when I came to the United States, I probably worked harder than most people mm. who were born here because the contrast from where I came from, what this country has to offer was so great yeah. that what that basically provided a lot of fuel for my uh, work ethics mm. and you know and you know, and uh, you know, how hard I work, I guess. Yeah, that's interesting, actually. I I had made a note of that um, somewhere on my pages. I'm just having a look here. You know, one thing that stood out to me uh, was what I I called your tenacity, which uh, from a young age and certainly what I noticed when you wrote in your book about moving to the States was you went to great lengths to get work. Um, You didn't really speak English and you you applied for a lot of jobs. and, And then even, I guess, when you got your role with PVG and again when you were looking for work as an analyst, I found that you very persistent um, and really tried everything. Is is that something that you, are you persistent in all areas of life? I, I think I'm persistent in something I'm interested in. Okay. Yeah. So there's a, like, I'm a lazy person by nature, but whenever something interests me, that laziness goes away. Okay. So if you ask me to mow the lawn, <laughs> I would be not the right person to, you know, <laughs> because I, my, my, pers- my persistency level would not be very high. If you ask me to do some other things that are kind of that I at that point would frame as uh, not interesting to me, my persistent level would be very low. But if something I decide is interesting to me, 
like I'm become unstoppable, you yeah. know, and that's right. it. Yeah, yeah. You just, yeah. So that's interesting. And I mean, I guess um, the other thing that I found quite interesting is you lived in the town Mamansk. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly, but that uh, location at times of the year only has 10 minutes a day of sunlight. Yeah. Do you remember <laughs> so that? I mean, the, it just sounds bizarre, you know, really to. Yeah, it is. It <laughs> is. Yes. Yeah, so the, so. So I, first of all, I got to explain where I live today. So I need to provide a proper, you know, I live in Denver and I think we have 300 plus day of, uh, days of sunshine. Like um, when I moved here in this, on December 4th, uh, 1991, we, like we, we left from Moscow. We, we flew from Moscow. And, at the, and I remember at the time we were wearing this very heavy clothes because it was incredibly cold. And we get to Denver and people wearing T-shirts in December, in December, right? So it's this, this incredibly sunny, warm climate. Now, let's talk about the place where I actually grew up, Murmansk. If you look at the map of Russia, and if you look on the left, and then you go, you go very, very high, and you basically, you look at the tip of Norway, so Murmansk is located at the you know above the Arctic Circle, so there is no um, so in the winter time there is almost no sunlight. In fact, I would go to school at nine o'clock in the morning in stark. Yeah. While, while I'm at school, the sun would come out for five or ten minutes or fifteen minutes, and I would be at school, so I wouldn't see it. And so when I walk back home, it's dark again. So for months I would not see sun. Mm. And and it was incredible. It was very very cold too. So, as we were as you and I were discussing contrast between poor Russia with a you know with very few uh, you know uh, uh, with you know, you, know, you know very corrupt country with few rights etc. And the United States, I would contrast Murmansk and Denver the same way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like it's a it's a night and day, yeah, yeah. night and day, literally. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> I can't help but think that Russia is very topical given what's going on in the world at the moment. And yeah. I know you've written um, quite a few uh, articles on Putin, but I, I wonder if you'd be kind enough to share just, you know, a summary view with my audience uh, because it's we are very sure. far away from Russia, but I think everybody's feeling that we're just that little bit closer with what's going on. Not far enough now. Mm, you yeah. feel like yeah, you would be far, yeah. I used to be proud to say I'm from Russia. And now when I say this, I feel like I'm not proud. You know, I'm not proud of Russia anymore. I'm a, now, in fact, a lot of times when people ask me where, you know, where I'm from, I would say I, I, was, I was born in the USSR. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but uh, I, like, so where to start? I mean, I, when I was growing up in Russia, would you okay? So let's okay. Let's rewind a little bit. Okay, so Russia and like Soviet Union in general suffered tremendously during World War II. That is the war where tens of millions of uh, Soviet people died because it's not just Russians; it's a Russians, Ukrainian, Belarusians, and and list goes on. Died during this war. We. I grew up hating Nazis. I grew up actually even hating Germans, mm-hmm. which is, believe it or not, I even until I moved to the United States, for me, a German was a Nazi were kind of, were almost uh, meant the same thing. That's not the case today, obviously. That war had a tremendous imp- you know, psychological imprint on Russians mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, and uh, people who live in Russia. Now, what's important to understand, when I was in high school, they would take us, uh, like uh, we would watch movies about World War II. And I, again, this hate for Nazis in Germany was really cultivated for me from very young age. And by the way, for kind of the right reasons, right? I mean, they they did kill tens of millions of people. I'm Jewish, and they did kill you know yeah. millions of Jews in a very cruel way. If if you look what Russia is doing today, it's not that much different from what Nazi Germany was doing, because if you think about uh, Nazism, it's basically saying German race is superior to others, and other races are. are inferior and therefore we're going to exterminate them and we're going to dominate them some we're going to exterminate some we're going to dominate and if you th- if you read uh russian newspapers today 
they sound like you can just change some words and it's not going to be much from uh, Nazi Germany newspapers because they look at Ukrainians as an inferior nation. And they're basically saying, ironically, if you let Ukrainians grow up on their own, they become Nazis. It's almost like if you plant strawberries, they become strawberries. If you let Ukrainians become, you know, you know, grow up on their own, they become Nazis. And therefore, we, we need to inter- intervene and kind of uh, purify of this embedded Nazism. Mm-hmm. I mean, if this is not, if this is not um, a, a kind of a different mutation of Nazism, I don't know what is. Yeah. So, so that's kind of how you know, kind of I look at this war. I might feel ashamed for uh, for the country you know, where I spent eighteen years of my life, and uh, and I just. You know, that's yeah, that's how I feel about this war. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand, and I guess to be fair to to everyday Russians, um, and certainly here in the West, we don't understand how people can be so. Uh, I can't think of the right word, but the crass word would be brainwashed. Um, we don't. We, we have well, it is brainwashed. Yeah. Yeah. Tanya, let me explain you how they're brainwashed, and this is a this is kind of this is a very interesting discussion. There was this movie called uh, Mrs. Jim Carrey called The Truman Show. Yes. And remember how, like, that is, imagine Russia, like Russians have been Jim Carrey. Yeah. And they are, they live in this information bubble. Mm-hmm. However, the difference between them and Jim Carrey was Jim Carrey could go online and watch, I mean, he could not go online and find out what's going on, you know, around the world, right? They can go online and read the Western newspapers. They don't like Western newspapers. They can read Israelis' newspapers. They don't like Israelis. They can read Al Jazeera. They can go anywhere they want to and read the news. But what happened was over the last since the, since 90s, Russian government um, since 2000s. I'm sorry, um, the Russian government basically took control of main media. Basically, all TV stations today are controlled by Kremlin. Major newspapers are controlled by Kremlin. Journal, you know, there are more journalists died under Putin, you know, regime than, yeah, you know, than uh, during Soviet Russia by a huge margin. Okay, let me give you this analogy. Okay, and uh, I don't know how well it's going to translate to Australia, but let, 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 we'll see. Okay, so in the nineteen in the nineteen nineties, uh, uh, it was very important if you had a sitcom TV show on TV that it followed the popular TV show. So if you have a new TV show, so you wanted to follow something very, like if you if you have a new TV show, you wanted to make sure it followed Friends or Seinfeld. Yeah. Be- why? Because people are lazy. Yeah. People are watching Friends, the next show comes on, and they'll be watching the show, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, imagine that instead of having 500 TV channels, you only have a few, yeah. right? And you're watching, you know, you're watching your favorite TV show, and after this TV show comes news, okay? And so that news is a completely curated content. Mm-hmm. So the reality that, so you and I look at Russians, and we and we think how can they, how can they tolerate this, etc. Well, the reality that they're experiencing is very different than ours. Yeah. Like I'll give you one example. I, uh, when Putin announced mobilization last week, I actually watched the whole speech, the whole twelve minutes of it. And what's interesting is this: when you think of evil dictators, you think like Hitler comes to mind, right? Because think about it: he had a very, um, if you look at his face, it was not a kind face. Mm. He spoke in a very like German language itself is very abrasive. Yeah. Nothing wrong against the language, except yeah. it does sound very abrasive, yeah. right? So when you hear his speeches, you have this guy who is extremely unlikable and abrasive. And you know, so therefore it's very easy for him to, to, to go look at him and say he's evil. Yeah. Now, when I was watching uh, Putin's speech, uh, but uh, where he you know talk about mobilization. What you saw was a kind person who spoke very softly, who 
basically was saying, look, listen, like, I don't want to do this, mm. but we have to because the West is threatening us with nuclear weapons. They, uh, they're, bombing, they're bombing high schools and hospitals. So, like, if you listen to his speech, and by the way, everybody who's listening to this could actually go and read the transcript at least, you'll see that there is not a single line of truth in that speech, but what you'll be missing is that, you know, that Russians who are listening to this, they, most of them don't realize he's lying to them. And he's speaking in such a way that, like, you, you basically have some mothers say, God, I really don't want to have send my kids to war, but we kind of have to. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's it. That's that's what's going on in Russia today. Yeah. Well, I I appreciate that, and I think it's important for all of us to um, remember these things with that kind of context, because it is very easy to sit back and, and wonder why. But um, but you're right. Their reality is is very different to ours, which is so sad. But uh, it's a good point to raise. Look, um, I guess just moving away from that topic a little. Um, this isn't really an investment podcast, but I think um, it would be really nice to just briefly discuss investing and, and specifically value investing, which I know is is um, what you enjoy. And, and for those that are listening that may not understand what the difference is, um, do you have a, a way that you describe the difference between growth investing and value investing? You would think it's a simple question, but it isn't. <laughs> no, and the reason, the, the, so the... I you I'm the first person who is responsible for committing this sin because I use the word value investing all the time, mm-hmm. but it really should be called investing. Yeah, right. True. Okay, because everything else is not investing. Everything else is is, is a speculation or gambling, but it's not investing. So um, I could argue that you could be a value investor who invests in growth companies. Mm. Or you can be a value investor that invests in companies that are not growing earnings. Okay. Or, but a lot of times, but this is not what's happening. A lot of times what it means is that growth investors are basically, and I'm right now I'm going to the extreme. Yes. Okay. Growth investors are basically buying companies uh, that are growing earnings and uh, at high rates, and they don't care how much they pay for the stock because they think whatever the valuation is, this company will grow into it or outgrow it. And it works until it doesn't. Yeah. Like it worked for a long time and now it's down, you know, a lot of those stocks down 50, 70%. Yeah. So value investing is a, so like I wanted to know how I, val- I answered the first part of the question where you can be value investor buying growth stocks mm-hmm. and you can be value investor buying stocks that are not growing earnings. Now, let me explain the difference. So the, like first, let me tell you what value investing is. Value investing is actually a philosophy. It's not about buying. It's not about buying statistically cheap stocks. And I'll give you. I'll give you three. There's. I wrote this essay called "The Six Commandments of Value Investing," and your listeners can go to sixcommandments.com and download it. It's absolutely free. But I'll give you three tenets. Okay. Number one, um, three commandments. Number one. You look at when you analyze companies, you don't look at them as you know, stocks and pieces of paper. You look at them as businesses, yeah. as if you are buying the whole business. You know, like you know, not just 0.2 percent of the business, but if you're buying the whole enterprise. Mm-hmm. Number two, you look for margin of safety. Okay, so future will not always turn out the way we expect it to be. Therefore, you want to make sure you, when you buy a company, you buy it cheap enough that if the future is not as bright you're going to come out okay. And number three, you have a long-term time horizon, okay? Because you can't truly be doing anything in the stock market. You can't be investing in the stock market if you don't have a long-term time horizon. There are other commandments, but to save time, those are the, you know, kind of the three that kind of give you a flavor of what value investing is. So as a value investor, if you find a company that has a very large, has a large earnings power that's not here today, but maybe there is going to be there. It's going to show itself in three to five years, and so and based on that earnings power, the company is undervalued. So you know, so look, we just you know, long term. Yeah. You know, you're looking three to five years out. That's long term, relatively. You are, you 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 are saying the company is undervalued based on the future earnings power. Okay, so you can be value investor buying companies that grow in earnings. Look, I, I think that's really helpful, and uh, I guess. 
you know, we we saw a lot of people um, doing all the things that we probably warn people against and, and you, you, you and I probably read a lot of books in this sort of area, but, you know, last year when markets, it, it felt like every asset class was outperforming uh, and, and everybody was suffering FOMO, as we call it, and fear of missing out yeah. and, and jumping in, um, but possibly not always jumping in with the right considerations and, and potentially now looking at their portfolios and feeling the fear that comes with the roller coaster of, of investing. Uh, I guess value investing has a philosophy that can hold people to to the reasons behind why they, they may be investing as well. You just try to make rational decisions. And, and rational decisions are usually, there is a logic and valuation and analysis that uh, that's a kind of the thread that goes through rational decisions. Yeah, the data that sits behind it. Yeah, and it has a lot less emotion. So the, if you think about it, the more emotions you have in your decision, the less rationality you have in a decision. Mm-hmm. So uh, as an investor, what you try to do, you try to your analysis to get rid of as many, you know, as much, you know, kind of squeeze out all the emotions out of the decision. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate that. I guess the other thing that I wanted to talk a little bit about before we, we get into your book, but it's leading in there, is is your your love of writing. And and in fact, not just a love, but it's it's almost a, a, an important part of your life. Um, can you tell us about your writing routine and what it does for you? Yeah. I write two hours a day, every day, with very rare exceptions. And uh, I love writing. Mm-hmm. So... Like when you when you start a conversation, I'm talking about persistence. Yeah. It's very easy to me to be persistent in writing because it's not a chore. Yeah. Mowing the lawn is a chore. Yeah. Writing is not a chore. Okay, um, and so I get up every morning and I write for about two hours. And what I find is that writing, it's basically my brain is chaos. Okay, like let me give you this analogy. Think about it. My brain is the Caesar salad. <laughs> like with a bunch of letters, croutons, and a whole bunch of other things. And when I write, I carefully go through this uh, cereal salad and kind of fish out croutons and then organizing them one after another. This is basically what writing does for me. Mm. It's my way to think. In other words, if I didn't write, you and I would not be talking, not just because I would not write a book, but because I wouldn't have any interesting ideas to talk about. Yeah. So if I have any interesting ideas because I wrote about it, because I you know, spent hours in front of the computer and thought about it, mm-hmm. that's, yes. Yeah, yeah, it's quite incredible, isn't it? It really is pulling out of your subconscious um, all, all the things that we take in every day, all day long, for years, on, um, I guess, on top of each other and, and putting on, on the page. It's, it's sort of a, it's something that I don't think a lot of people do much anymore, but I do hear that things like journaling are coming back into vogue, and I wonder if that's going to help people um, have have the same sort of effect, I guess, of clearing clearing their mind each day. I'm a like, I'm a hypocrite when it comes to journaling because I'm a I think everybody should do it, mm-hmm. but I'm not doing it. Yeah, <laughs> and, but Fair no, enough. but but I, I have an excuse, I have an excuse actually. I tried journaling for about a month, mm-hmm. and the reason I failed at that because. It confused me because I did it in the morning, yeah. and it confused my brain and me. Was I writing or was I journaling? Right. Yeah. And and so, arguably, my writing is my journaling, yeah. but it's slightly different, right? But I, yeah. but I have a goal which, which I haven't achieved yet. Is that to journal before you go to sleep, maybe for mm-hmm. 10, 15 minutes, just think about the day, yeah. and just think about tomorrow, you know, uh, the following day. I haven't like I. I tr- like I haven't done it yet, but this is this is I don't you know I don't set you know New Year's resolutions. By the way, we are talking today on the Jewish New Year. Yeah. Uh, oh, but, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but that's that's something I'm going to start doing soon. Mm, okay. Yeah. And look, I think the other thing that really well, I certainly loved um, and is how personal you are in your writings, uh, both your letters to your clients and your book. Um, it's it's very much about you and your, your family. I mean, was that something that you developed over time or is that that's just you? That is a, such a great question. Uh, let me tell you why. Because when I started writing, I hope that whatever I wrote when I started writing kind of 
gets lost in the memory banks of internet. Yeah. Um, because it was incredibly boring, incredibly impersonal. <laughs> yeah. I had no self-confidence and it was very proper and like it's like it's like it's like reading the press release that is mm-hmm. uh like you know like when you get press release you never read it because you know how boring it is going to be yeah. so it's it was that's how my writing was and then over time i kind of my as i became a little more a little bit more confident kind of my true self started to come through mm-hmm. and i realized it and i realized that being personal is okay. And I, and I'm like if you read my stuff and it's personal, it's not because it's a, it's just because that's the only way I can write. So here's the thing. There's I think there are two types of writers. There are professional writers and there are amateur writers. I put myself despite despite writing three books, I put myself in the amateur writers category. Here's why. I feel like professional writers they can so they can write on any subject about anything with very tight deadlines. Like when you think about professional journalists, and you you know like somebody who writes for I don't know Wall Street Journal or whatever Financial Times, those people can write on like if they care about the subject or they don't, they can write about it. Yeah. I I don't. I I pick subjects that interest me. I can't write on deadlines, or I, or I don't like to yeah. write on deadlines. Um, and I tell you, uh, I can only write one way. That's the way I write. Yeah. That's, you know, that's how it's written in the book. And I'm lucky that actually some, you know, a lot of people like that, you know, that style, yeah. but that's, you know, that's, but that's, that's how, that, that because I'm a, because I'm not a professional, that's how I write and that's how I'm going to continue to write. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I think it's really, um, well, it's, it, to me, it's brave uh, because I write blogs to my my clients, and and people listening may may have read some of my things. But I haven't been brave enough to share personal things because I don't know. There's a sort of a barrier there where you think, well, does anyone really care what I think or have gone through? Or um, and but what I realised when I read your book and and a little bit about why we even started a podcast is that people do want to hear more or learn more and relate. Oh, that's like me. I feel like that too. Um, it's a connection in a way, isn't it? So, yeah, no, this is very important. Okay. So when I write about investments, this is, this is, a, this is, a, this is such a good conversation, you know, it's such a good discussion because this is, this is something very dear to me because I thought a lot about this. When I write about investments, I have the right to write about investments. I have two finance degree, I have a CFA, I've been managing money for 25 years. So I do have a lot of professional experience and I have a pedigree to do this. Now, I have zero, like I didn't, I didn't have a, I don't have a liberal arts degree. I am not writing, like, I'm not writing a life column for New York Times or whatever. So me writing this book, if you told me, and actually, by the way, I started the book this way because it's very honest. You know, if somebody told me that I would write this kind of book or would be writing about life, yes. I would have laughed. <laughs> like, yeah. like, who am I to do this? But here's what I found. So, so I have this newsletter, and you know, and you you read it. You, yes. I hope you read I the have, news. Yes. Yeah, and this newsletter is kind of a funky thing, right? Because, like, it's a as I'm describing it, it sounds very funky. Once you see it, you're like, okay, it kind of makes sense. Just like this book, by the way. Um, so you have my father's art at the top. There is a story about life. There is an investment article. Then there's my brother's artwork. And then there is a discussion about classical music. Yes. And so what's usually happened in the past, people would stumble on one of my articles on Financial Times, Barron's, or Market Watch. And then they would subscribe to my newsletter and they subscribe for my investment insights. Mm-hmm. But then they would write to me and they'd say, Vitaly, I came to you for your investment insights, but I'm staying for your life articles. <laughs> Lovely. And this is very important because that gave me the confidence. Yes, okay. As a writer, you need to have the confidence. Yes. Like right now, as you're describing, you don't have the confidence, True. right? Because you're saying, you know, but... But the confidence doesn't come overnight. Conf- it's mm-hmm. confidence is something that you build, I think. So over t- over the years, I built this confidence that uh, basically now I can write about, 
I feel like there is no topic that's off limit to me. Yeah, like I, I agree. It, you know, within no topic that interests me. Yeah, that's off limit to me. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you you raise another point that I made a note of, which is that you do include your father's art and, and your brother's art um, in your articles. And and in fact, I think some of your clients um, have become fans of of your family's art and. I thought that that was a really beautiful collaboration, um, finance and art, very two things that I would think people wouldn't normally consider go together. Do you think that's helping break down the barrier of finance? I feel sometimes people feel finance is very dry or, or in fact, difficult, and therefore they ignore it. Um, and I wondered if you felt that this is a way of bringing in some beautiful pieces of life in, an, in another way and, and letting people digest finance, you know, through a different lens, perhaps. So, I mean, I, if you're asking why I started to include my father's art, that was not the reason for that because I just wanted, I just, I just wanted to expose my father's art to more people, you know. Yeah. But let me tell you, that, but I think there is one point you're making that I think is so true. Finance could be very dry because if I were to read any kind of medical journal, I would get bored out of my mind. Okay? And if you were to read the finance textbooks, actually, if I were to read textbooks, finance textbooks, I would get bored out of exactly. my mind too. And I, you know, and, I, and I went and I did this because I had to do this. Um, but I don't think it has to be boring. And I think the way you solve this is by telling stories. Yeah. And if you think, you know, if you... One thing I think that makes my writing the way it is, is like I'm not afraid to tell stories. It's very important that stories are the least efficient way to communicate. (laughs) I got to tell you this story. This is is absolutely true. I have this, and I wrote about this in the book. I have this friend who is kind of a very German heritage. Okay. And you know, like when you think of Germans, you think very efficient people, you know. And he wrote this book. Oh, no, so, so anyway, he, so when, when, when I was going to write my first book, like in he, the time he already wrote a book, he was giving me advice and he was talking about how, like, how, like, I should make sure not to tell too many stories, how it should be efficient, etc. And then I kind of read his book and his book was incredibly efficient. And, but here's the problem. I never got past chapter two or three just because it was so efficiently boring. And what stories do, like stories, that's what keeps us going from from one page to the other. Because we need, like, stories are, like, almost deeply embedded in our DNA. That's what really, that's what separates us from from, uh, primates. Um, And so... uh, I think storytelling is a very, very important way to communicate. And guess what? The yes, it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to take you four pages instead of two. But then somebody would actually read those four pages. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. really interesting, isn't it? Well, I, I do want to um, start talking uh, about the book, and um, I guess one of the things that <laughs> I um, really liked was. Um, you you wrote you didn't write a lot about finance at all in the book, so therefore probably everyone who's listening today will read it <laughs> because it really is a, a fantastic read and, and I enjoyed every part of it. And as I said to you before we hit record, I, I've gone back to chapters a number of times. There's something in there I've thought, oh, I want to sort of refresh my memory on that um, or it's related to something. So I, I think the book is incredibly relatable and, and I think that's the thing that really brings um, a lot of the messages in because I think everybody lives life and you're living life and, and sharing your stories as we go um, with some lovely analogies in there that really help people maybe hone into sort of the underlying message um, that you're contributing to. But one of the areas that I really loved um, was the budgeting section and budgeting is an incredibly boring uh, topic. If I mention the word budget, they all my clients will roll their eyes and, you know, almost want to cut their own fingers off before they want to do a budget. But the, the thing that really I liked um, in your budgeting was the forward saving idea, the idea of thinking about what you might want in two or three years' time yeah. and 
factoring that into your budget today so that when two or three years' time comes up, you've, you've got those savings ready to meet that little goal, whether it be a holiday or a new car. Yeah, are there any other tips like that that you, that you have for people? Let me step back for a little bit, and I'm gonna exp- I'm gonna try to experiment with this thought right now. Mm. What is the purpose of money? Like, why do we go to work? Why do we make this money? Why do we make money? And I think we make money is to get through life, to pay for our needs, and and I think the most important part is that to get as little anxiety as possible about tomorrow, today, you know, today and tomorrow. The problem is that no matter how much money we make, we can always spend more money than we make. That's, if you make 50,000 hours a year, you can always spend 70. If you make 10 millions, you can always spend 15, okay? So it doesn't matter how much money you make, um, you can always spend more. So now, I would argue that money... Like you, we need to be very mindful. And by the way, I love the name of your podcast for this reason, about how you uh, how we make money spending decisions. Mm-hmm. Now, why budget is important? It's basically ranks our spending based on our values. Okay, so let's 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 talk about this. Okay, and this is by the way. So the when somebody taught my friend Mark taught me how to budget. At the time, I already had a CFA degree designation. I had a master's in finance degree. So if you, th- if you think I'm speaking down to you, like imagine me having a finance degree and being educated about this. Finance degree. So, you know. But anyway, but if, you, so the, if, you, if your goal in life to maximize what, uh, what, mo- uh, what money buys for you uh, and, and reduce the anxiety you know, about you know, that anxiety in your life uh, when it comes to money, then then there are certain things you can do. So let's start with the budget. So you take the budget and you look at your you know, your income and you look at your expenses. And certain expenses is easy to identify. Your mortgage, your your cable bill, your internet, your whatever, your electricity bills, etc. Okay, so the first, so write them down. The first things that you know, come to mind. Then you also don't forget that you go to Starbucks, you know, so many times a week, and then you go to Chipotle. Do you guys have a Chipotle in Australia? No, I don't think we do. Okay, well, you go to we'll fast food, whatever that is. <laughs> yes, okay. You go to McDonald's. Yeah, okay, yeah. let's. Okay, so, okay, so you you know you go to uh you know so the so write down all you know all your expenses, but don't stop there. You also there are expenses that happen on a semi regular basis. They just not happen in this month. Every five years, whatever you buy a new car. So think about how much is it going to cost me. Now, you know, I'm going to buy another car five years from now. I'm going to sell this car in five years. How much money I'm going to get for it? So how much money do I need to save so when I buy that next car, I won't have to borrow money? Now, let's talk about borrowing money for a second. When you borrow money, basically the compound interest is working against you because you're paying interest on interest. So it should be everybody's goal to pay as little interest as possible because you get very little value out of this except when you buy a house. I mean, obviously it's a very large expense. And so I, you know, so that one makes sense. But a lot of, be a lot of times we buy washers and dryers, cars, et cetera, things we could have saved for in a reasonable amount of time. And we would have avoid paying uh, interest to uh, Capital One or some other credit card company. Yeah. Now, but what's, but here's the thing. And this is the punchline. Buy, money buys the most when it buys things you value. Okay, so let me give you this example. When you you get you just moved into a new city, you got a new job, you're driving to work your first day, and there is a Starbucks. And you stop by the Starbucks, you get a cup of coffee, you go to work. The next day, you do the same thing because that's what you did the day before. And suddenly, six months later, you're finding out that you, that you go to Starbucks every day, five days a week, and you spend six dollars every time. And then over, the, over one year, you end up spending, I don't know, 1,200 hours on this. And now, this is an important point. Was that a mindful decision or mindless? If you really enjoy receive tremendous, tremendous enjoyment from this cup of coffee, 
then this is one thing. If you are doing it because you've been doing it, you're doing it mindlessly, you are spending this $1,200 a year on something that brings you very little value. And that means that money could have bought you something you actually, uh, you, you would have enjoyed. Like, in the, if, yes, if uh, if United States would, you know, I would argue going to Chipotle, but that's just me. Um, but uh, anyway, um, but in, so this, this, so this, this is where this budgeting, what it does, it prioritizes your spending. And suddenly you say, you know what, I actually, don't don't enjoy Starbucks very very much. I don't enjoy Chipotle's very much, and actually, I actually prefer to cook at home. And that money I save now actually can go uh, on vacation to, like, if I was American, I would say I would go to Sydney. Yeah. But you know, like since you're Australian, you can go to New Zealand. Uh, where you know, okay, so. And suddenly you realize actually travel is a lot more meaningful to me than you know than spending money at Starbucks or whatever, and and so now what it does it goes on a higher level in the budget on the budgeting spreadsheet. Anyway, that's that's kind of how I think about personal finance. And I think that's you know really important. I think that the other thing, in my opinion, that has made spending and budgeting more complicated uh, is technology because you know when we first got a job, um, you and I perhaps, maybe not some of the people listening, but we were paid in cash in, in a little uh, pay packet and, you know, once that cash ran out, you you didn't have any more so you, you had to say no to things. But now with technology, we don't see our money. We tap, uh, we use our phone um, and right. we, we don't feel the hard work of handing over that hard-earned money. And so the mindfulness has to kick up a notch, um, like you said, about the values. You really need to be thinking, do I really want this cup of coffee more than I want to go on a holiday or, or whatever your priorities may be? My daughter, Hannah, 16 years old, she went for a walk. And she has a she can use my credit card whenever she wants. Yeah. Well, like, well, let me put it this way. She has it on her phone. She has, she can use it when she has the permission to use it. Yeah. Let me put it this way. But she can, you know, okay. And I see, like, the eight-hour charge on my credit card. Like, and I get it, I learned right away. Yeah. When she comes home, I was like, what What happened? She's like, well, I went to went for work. I stopped by a coffee shop. I bought a, I bought coffee and I bought a croissant. Yeah. I'm like, great. Like, you know, that, that money you make when you do a chest tutoring, <laughs> You know, you you could be paying for that with that money. She's like, no, 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 Dad, you don't understand. That is like, I have to work so much for this money, and that the, 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 to make this money, that is like a that is not it's not worth it. it and uh, and I think there is a lesson in this. And um and by the way, when it comes to like uh, by the way, let's I'm gonna change topics a little bit, but I think it's relates to when it comes to raising kids and teaching them about personal finance. I think it's very important. To always give them a little bit, you know, when you give them a, some kind of weekly allowance, yeah. to give them a little bit less, you know, that they need, yeah. and because you want, you want to create this scarcity, yeah. and uh, because I think the scarcity would uh, a lot would they would have to make decisions, mm -hmm. they would have to make this, yeah, they, it forced them to make decisions. And because they realize that they have to give something up to get something else. It's a trade-off, which is what life is, yes. is often all about, certainly on the financial side. There's there's often a trade-off yes. that we, we would say to people, do you do you want it now or do you want it in retirement or, or whatever the trade-off may be. There's, there's obviously That's right. lots of different things. Yeah, no, I, I, I can appreciate that. Thank you. I, I guess another thing that I really loved um, was your uh, chapter on don't let your environment control you. Um, and how you make a, a non-decision a decision. And, and in the, the example in the book you used was that you don't eat dessert um, because you, you sort of indicated that it's easier to give up bad habits than acquire good ones. Um, and that was a really interesting chapter for me because I have a terrible sweet tooth. So <laughs> I really thought I, I actually couldn't give up dessert. Um, but... I wonder, is there other examples uh, that you use that framework for? When I say I'm a person who doesn't eat dessert, it becomes part of my identity. And then if it's because something becomes part of your identity, it's very difficult to change. Mm -hmm. So in other words, it's actually very easy for you not to, you know, like for me, 
it's very easy for me not to eat dessert because I'm the person who doesn't eat desserts. So it's it just it's, it becomes part of my programming. Okay. Um, um, I like I'm, I kind of touched on the concept of scarcity, and I think for us, so th- just think about this for a second. Like this is the, this is where actually kind of my me growing up in Russia and coming to the United States actually provides a very interesting insight. Mm. So when I was growing up in Russia, I had Pepsi once in 18 years of my life. And I remember that one time I had Pepsi, it was this incredibly magical experience. It was hot outside, Pepsi was cold, and it has this incredible taste and sweetness. I loved it. Only once in 18 years. Just that's the only time. Okay. Then I come to United States, and I have this realization that I can I can eat I can buy a gallon of Pepsi every day if I want to, and it costs as much as water, <laughs> um, which is actually kind of funny. It's kind of costs as much as bottled water actually. Um, but cheaper. And uh, <laughs> yeah, cheaper. Yes. And um, for the next three years, I consumed more Pepsi and Coke than I did over previous eighteen years of my life. And I remember this moment vividly. I was in the Village Inn, which is one of the restaurants in, you know, in Denver. And I ordered a, you know, a third refill of Coke. Like you could get unlimited refills of Coke. And I remember I'm drinking Coke and I can't taste the taste. I'm just, I'm, it tastes like water. It's not even water, it's some kind of liquid. And I realized that because I've been drinking so much, my taste buds got completely corrupted by that. And so from that point on, I said, you know what? I'm going to drink Coke or Pepsi whenever I go to movie theaters, which is two or three times a year, maybe four. I tell you this. And this this was like 20-something years ago. And I I tell you, every time I drink Pepsi or Coke today, I enjoy every single sip of it. And so there is a value in scarcity. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the we get to appreciate when they we the Western world loves abundance, mm-hmm. and I understand why. Yeah. Okay, because we come from the if you think about life hundred years ago, all we experienced was scarcity, and now because of the uh, industrialization etc., we can do things so much cheaper, so much faster, and the capital is much cheaper than uh, labor etc., and therefore we have abundance, yeah. and. Um, and so what's happening today is that we, I would argue, need to infuse a certain amount of scarcity in our life. Mm, yeah. And it, we have to artificially do this in a sense that, um, like, this is, I'm going to, I'm going to sound for a second like this spoiled brat and I, and I apologize for this, but like, like red caviar, mm. like, which is yeah. like, this is something, this is something that, like when I was grew up in Russia, like that was like one one of those delicacies, yeah. delicacies, and I could go like every uh, every day after you know every every Friday after work I go to Russian store and then pick up some stuff. My wife tells me to pick up, yeah. and I could pick up that red caviar every single time, and we could afford it. Yeah. But I don't do this for one reason because I know if we have it every Saturday, it's not going to be special to us anymore. If you do it, if if you buy it once a month, yeah. once every two months, then it's going to be special. Yeah. So this is an example. Like, and again, I I almost hate this example because it makes me, uh, makes me sound like this, like this spoiled. Well, I think rich everyone can understand money manager, yeah, but it's, yeah. but that's not the yeah, but that's a, but that's that's an example where something I like, but if I had it all the time, I would actually would not value it as much. Yeah, and I think we do need to get better at creating more special things um, rather than making them every day just because we can. Um, Again, it takes takes a little bit of brain power and mindfulness over um, creating that scarcity, which the word scarcity obviously isn't something that people want to think about, but but less abundance then maybe. (laughs) Um, All right, well, let's now talk about Stoic philosophy, because this is the second sort of part of your book and something that, um, well, as as you say, uh, I think Stoic philosophy needs a better PR agent. I think it is a a word that uh, or has a reputation for Stoicism, a a lack of emotion or something sort of very, um, yeah, 
factual rather it's than about, it's somebody about feel, it's somebody about feel, without feel, feelings, yeah, right? That's right. How does it, yeah. And, and but you know, it, it was the complete opposite. Um, and in fact, you know, I didn't realize how much I probably aligned with this philosophy myself. And 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 it is the part that why I've gone back and read chapters of your book over and over again to to sort of really digest it. And and I haven't done any further research um, other than just reading your book um, on it. But I, I've, I found it really fascinating and, and for several different reasons. But number one, I guess, the framework behind it of, of really pausing and, again, being a bit mindful about our emotions and, and what you sort of say is that we we can't control what's going on around us but we can control with how we're dealing with that. But what I also like, and, and I'll get you to give us some examples, is you, you really put a little bit of humour in there, which um, which I think makes it sound more real. Um, and and well, I'll give you an example rather than putting you on the spot. I think um, I had a couple of them written down over here. Well, you <laughs> you said do covet your neighbour's wife, um, which is a funny one uh, as a, as a chapter heading. Do you, do you want to explain that one? <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. So just like I my my neighbour has the book. <laughs> And I hope he hasn't read it yet. <laughs> Embarrassing. And I, and I told him, like, and he's a new neighbor. I said, listen, I wrote it before, yeah. before you moved in. Um, so, yeah, so this is like, you know, like the Ten Commandments and there's one of the commandments, you know, don't, you know, don't covet your uh, neighbor's wife. Um, the coveting is actually, is basically, it's, a, it's wanting what other people have. Yes. And I would argue, go ahead and do this. But if you do this, you have to cover the whole package, not just her, the the beauty that you see in her. But like, but but that's because you only see the one side of it. You only see the beauty in her. But there's also a whole, whole bunch of other things that comes with her. There could be this mother-in-law that insists to kiss you on the lips every time you see her. There could be this brother who constantly gets drunk and you have to bail him out. And and so many other things, right? And so, because what happens a lot of times, we look at somebody else and we want to have what they have. But what, what we don't realize, how the person got what the person has, we actually would not want that. And the example I use in the book, I used to talk about Warren Buffett. I'm a value investor and I go to Berkshire Hathaway every single year. And I was having a conversation with my friend where I said, would you want to have Warren Buffett's wealth? He said, yeah. Is that, like, is that a rhetorical question? I said, no. He's like, yes, of course. I said, well, but but think about the cost of getting this wealth. Mm-hmm. Because Warren Buffett was obsessed about investing, is obsessed about investing. And he would get Wall Street Journal delivered to him in the evening before, you know, he wanted to read it before everybody else does. And what Warren Buffett had to give up to get to that wealth he had ruined his relationship with his wife, a woman he loved. Mm-hmm. He uh, neglected his kids. In a sense, I'm sure his kids were taken care of, don't get me wrong, but they didn't receive the fatherly love yeah. that uh, and his attention. Um, so my argument would be if you want to covet something, you have to just don't just look at the, the like small yeah. sliver of uh, what you want to cover it. You have to cover the whole thing. That's right, the good with the bad. Uh, and then once you start looking at it this way, you realize actually maybe you don't actually don't want it anyway. Yeah, which I think is really important, isn't it? Because we don't do that. We just see something and think it, how wonderful it would be to have that. But but you're right, it comes with, with a whole other set of issues as well as the benefits. Yes. And yeah. um, another one that I really liked um, is you, you talked about, and I'm not, quite sure what the example was, but but thinking of doing something for, as if you were doing it for the last time and to, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. to try and make it, uh, and this, this one really resonated for me because I found myself, in fact, it was just probably only a week ago complaining that I, you know, leave the office late and then I have to go home and cook for my family and, and I've got three sons, uh, two, two, two are adults, one's still in school and they're fussy eaters. And so it's always been a, a sort of a dread to come home and find something that everybody's going to eat and not whinge about. And and then I I did reframe this um, because I was probably preparing for our podcast and, and it was a bit top of mind. And I thought to myself, 
you know what, my kids are going to be moving out in a few years' time and, and I won't have the privilege of cooking for them every night. I will be lucky to perhaps cook for them once a week or, or maybe once a month when they come to visit or, in fact, if they move across the world, uh, maybe only once a year. And I went home that night and cooked with a bit of joy in my heart rather than my usual feeling grumbly and, and you know, wouldn't it be nice if, if I had a private chef? <laughs> so um, I really valued that concept because I think we get caught up in mundane every life, everyday life and, and look at the negative aspect of it. Um, I mean, is that something that you related with your kids or everyday life? Oh, God. I think this is one of those things that I constantly try to remind myself. Um, my, my son, Jonah, is out of the house. My daughters, uh, Hannah and Mia, they're still in school. Hannah is 16, so she only has two years of school left. That's it. That's about 400. Like, if you think about it, I'm probably going to only have a chance to drive for another 420 days. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's it. After this, she'll be driving herself and she'll be going to college. So every time I drive him to school, I look at this as a, like, I don't look at it, I, I reframed it. And now I look at it as a, don't look at it as a chore, but I look at it as a privilege. Yeah. As this as this special moment I get to spend with my daughters in a car. And therefore, when I'm in the car, I also... It's not just about me you know, being chauffeuring them to school. It's also spending time with them. So my attention is not to listen to podcasts, but actually uh, spending time with them, listening to music with them, talking to them. And, um, and that's, uh, you know, so because there will be time where they'll be driving Hannah for the last time. There will be time when I'm driving Mia for the last time. And uh, again, see, we're coming back to this concept of scarcity. True. Yeah. Once you realize how scarce things are in life, that they're, you know, everything is finite, then you, like, in fact, I probably could rewrite this book just, you know, <laughs> using the scarcity as the as the, as the main concept in the True. book. Um, but you know, the scarcity is incredibly important. Yeah. You know, yeah. Scarcity and like because you realize that yes, there will be last, there will be one day that I'll be doing something for the last time with my kids, mm -hmm. and therefore, when I'm doing it today. I'm going to be so much more present. That's right. Because the really attention is a currency of time. So me being present, paying attention to them, is is a um, that's something that I bring out because I know that that I'm doing. You know that the only so, so few times left. You know for me to do yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. That. No, I like that attention yeah. is a, a currency of time. I think that's really important. Um, the the framework that you sort of talk about a little bit and and uh, is is sort of labeling of internal and external can you can you explain a little yeah. bit more about that yeah i think so the so the framework you're referring to is dichotomy of control which is basically the framework this is what really attracted me to stoicism this dichotomy of control is fascinating because it's a life-changing you know life-changing framework and the framework is very simple and it sounds incredibly simple some things are up to us and some things aren't. That's it. That's the whole framework. The key is what things are up to us, and there are very few of them. It's basically our values, what we do, kind of our actions. Everything else is not up to us. Once you realize that, you realize that when you're driving to work and there is a red light on every, uh, uh, you know, and it's not up to you, then maybe you will not, you realize there is absolutely nothing you can do to change those lights, uh, to be green all the time. When you go to grocery store and the grocery clerk is rude to you, you realize all it is what up to me is how I react. It's not up to me if this person woke up on the wrong side of the bed today. Okay. And the reason it's important because if you're not obsessing about it now, then actually you're going to have a happier life because you only, in other words, you control the controllables, which is you, which is your behavior, how you frame things, how you, you know, it's, it's if you look at this, if you encounter this rude uh, grocery clerk, which is, I, I understand, never happens in Australia, only in other countries, not Australia. We have, okay? we have them. <laughs> um, if you travel to another country and you can counter this uh, root, uh, grocery clerk, um, then you can look at, you can look at uh, your, yourself saying, okay, this is actually a stoic test. Right now I've been tested how I'm going to react to it. Mm -hmm. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to surprise them with kindness. Yeah. 
maybe maybe you know what maybe but then yeah, maybe by doing this you're going to change that person's day and you know that person will feel bad about being rude to you again never happens in sydney as i understand but uh, okay but anyway so that's 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 this framework yeah, yeah. i appreciate it. I, I will let you go because i know we've we've gone over over time um but uh, please read the book uh, it's it's a fantastic read and and thank you vitali for writing that book um, and and sharing your life with us i really appreciate it tanya thank you so much by the way if you are listening to the, this book is available on Audible as well, so you can actually listen to it because I know oh, that if you listen to podcasts, right. you probably like to listen. And I, since I wrote the book, I already since the book went out, I already wrote four new chapters working on the fifth one. And you can get those chapters absolutely free Great. if you go to soulinthegame.net. Okay, I hope that people would do okay. that. Fantastic. Thank you, Vitaly. Thank you so much. This podcast is for general information only. It contains brief comments not intended to be the basis for decision-making, nor to be taken as a substitute for personal advice. Please contact Amplify Wealth Management to discuss any matters that may be relevant to your individual situation. Money Mind. If you have any questions about your financial future, please head to amplifywealth.com.au. Money Mind is available to download and subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts.